Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey pelvic people, welcome back. Today is a combo of Jeffrey's 2006 as the abstract is available online but not the full text, as well as Laslett in 2005. So let's jump into Jeffrey's 2006 first. The goal of this article was to test the null hypothesis that after 28 weeks of gestation, uterine blood flow during supine rest and supine exercise is no different than uterine blood flow at left lateral rest. This was an in vivo experimental study in pregnant women, so if you forget what in vivo means, it just means that it's testing with living subjects with a focus on assessing the safety and efficacy of treatments. In this case, this was in humans, but other times it's often in animals. Okay, so this study was conducted in the Department of Obstetrics in Cleveland, Ohio at the Metro Health Medical Center. The population included 14 physically active, late pregnant women who continued performing supine exercise throughout pregnancy. The researchers' main outcome measures included blood pressure, heart rate, and uterine artery volume flow. So what were their methods? They did the studies between 29 through 38 weeks gestation, and they checked their blood pressure, their heart rate, and the ultrasound estimates were performed for that volume blood flow. The specific artery they were looking at includes the ascending branch of the uterine artery, which was taken at rest in the left lateral position, at rest in the supine position, during and immediately after 10 minutes of supine exercise, and then again in that left lateral position at rest. So for exercise, this was alternating 60 to 90 second periods of abdominal crunches and leg exercises at a moderate or high intensity. They wanted to keep this within the Borg's perceived exertion rating of 13 to 15. For results, they found that maternal heart rate and blood pressure were unchanged at supine rest, but increased during supine exercises. So for example, the heart rate increased from 76 beats per minute, plus or minus nine, to 98 beats per minute, plus or minus 12. Mean arterial pressure also increased from 81 plus or minus six millimeters of mercury to 102 plus or minus 12 millimeters of mercury. So volume flow fell from 410 cc's per minute, plus or minus 93, to 297 cc's per minute, plus or minus 73, after five minutes of supine rest. And during supine exercise, it actually increased to 355 cc's per minute, plus or minus 125. Uterine artery luminal diameter and blood flow correlated directly with the tissue weights at birth. So what are the conclusions that we're gonna draw from all of those? In physically active women, uterine blood flow decreases during both supine rest and supine exercise, but the decrease in supine rest is twice that seen in supine exercise. So just some commentary regarding this article. You may have found the full article as I did when I was studying for it. Unfortunately, when I was looking for it this year, I was unable to access it without using my workplace database. So just out of respect for the authors and the paywall, I chose to do the abstract. 
That being said, this is a really common concern for patients and it's brought up all the time. So when there was an article um, that I was able to fully access, I did fully read it. And for patients who are interested, they've asked me to refer it to them to better understand safety and exercise with their pregnancy. So let's move on to Laslett in 2005 on the diagnosis of SIJ pain, validity of individual provocation tests, and composites of tests. This was authored by Mark Laslett, Charles April, Barry McDonald, and Sharon Young. So the authors begin by identifying the clinical diagnosis of symptomatic SIJ remains problematic, but the ability to make a diagnosis is an important objective. Without readily accessible means of differentiating between a source of pain being the SIJ, a disc, a nerve root, or facet joint, treatment strategies are likely going to be nonspecific and have at best some modest efficacy. They note a current acceptable method of confirming or excluding the diagnosis of a symptomatic SIJ is fluoroscopically guided, contrast-enhanced, intraarticular aesthetic block. And that's something we talked about a little bit ago in a prior article review. We also know that SIJ tests have some acceptable inter-rater reliability, but there's also evidence to show that these tests alone don't necessarily predict SIJ involvement as conclusively as that guided injection. In a previous publication, the authors have identified a composite of three provocation SIJ tests in the absence of centralization during repeated movement testing that clinically has useful sensitivity, specificity, and a positive likelihood ratio. So they note clinical stress tests are unlikely to load the targeted structure below. So here's the problem. When a test provokes familiar pain, the question becomes if this is evidence of pathology within that targeted structure or evidence of pathology in a different but a nearby structure that's also stressed at the same time. So their thought is if different stress tests of a structure provoke pain, a greater diagnostic confidence can result. The use of composites of tests is common in musculoskeletal medicine, so doing those series of testing and then having a confirmation with computed tomography or MRI completes the composite of tests for this diagnosis. So that being said, the current study explored the utility of utilizing composites of SIJ provocation tests to predict the results of that fluoroscopically guided, contrast-enhanced SIJ block, that diagnostic injection. So some pretty cool stuff. So throughout this report, references to a symptomatic SIJ, SIJ pain, or pathology are confined to meaning that the pain originates from the SIJ structures. There's actually a flowchart in this article on the study design, so let's just go through it. So patients with buttock pain with or without low back pain were referred to the clinic. They completed forms for demographics, history, a pain drawing, pain VAS, Roland and Dallas questionnaires were completed. They then checked for inclusion and exclusion criteria, and I'll go over that in just a second. Informed consent was taken. PTs performed SIJ provocation tests, and results were recorded. Regardless of the decision for diagnosis of a painful SIJ based on those tests, they were given a pre-diagnostic injection pain drawing and a numeric pain score to complete, then followed up with the diagnostic injection and a post-injection pain drawing, and the numeric pain score was completed. The clinical exam and injection procedures were completed the same day, and there was no treatment given to patients following their exam and tests. The PTs were blinded to the results of the previous diagnostic injections and previous imaging studies of those patients. Diagnostic injection was conducted blind from the results of the SIJ provocation tests and the results of the PT exam. Results from the clinical and the SIJ injection procedures were recorded on separate standardized data collection forms. 
So let's talk about the fun stuff I like, which is the inclusion and the exclusion criteria. I love seeing how they pick people and how they weed people out. So patients with buttock pain with or without lumbar or lower extremity symptoms were invited to participate in the study. Each patient had undergone imaging studies and had a variety of unsuccessful therapeutic interventions. Some were actually self-referred and others came from a variety of medical or allied health providers. Exclusion criteria included anyone who was unwilling to participate, which makes a lot of sense. And then those who only had midline or symmetrical pain above the level of L5 had clear signs of nerve root compression, so they had a complete motor or sensory deficit, or were referred for specific procedures, excluding that SIJ injection, were also excluded. Those deemed too frail to tolerate a full physical exam were also excluded. So they did a full background data collection and history. Remember that the VAS is that verbal analog scale of zero being no pain, 10 being the worst imaginable pain. Disability was measured via the Roland Morris questionnaire and the Dallas Pain Disability Scale. I hadn't used that Dallas Disability Scale when coming across it, so here's a a really quick rundown. The Dallas Pain and Disability Scale is a questionnaire that asks pain intensity and how back pain has interrupted in a few categories of life. So these categories being personal care, lifting, walking, sitting, standing, sleeping, social life, traveling, vocational activities, anxiety and mood, emotional control, depression, and relationship. Then there are two interesting questions, or I think so at least, about how much social support they feel they need, as well as how much punishing response others direct toward them due to their pain. So basically, how irritated are others towards you? So let's get into the tests they chose to evaluate for the SIJ pain. They didn't use palpation-based testing since there was poor inter-examiner reliability for those demonstrated in prior studies. They utilized one study that supported pain provocation testing as they had some acceptable reliability. So let's go over definitions for pain provocation testing. So there are positive provocation SIJ tests, which is when a provocation test produces or increases pain or aching, burning, symptoms, etc. in the SIJ. Then there are negative provocation SIJ tests, which is when a provocation SIJ test does not produce or increase those familiar symptoms. They also wanted to define a positive SIJ injection. So that's a slow injection of solution that provokes pain, an installation of a small volume of a local anesthetic, so less than 1.5 cc's, results in 80% or more relief of pain. Patients reporting a concordant pain response and at least 80% relief of their familiar pain were scheduled for a confirmatory block. Lidocaine was used in the initial injection, and bupivacaine was used for the confirmatory block to eliminate the need for a sham injection. And I may be really messing that name up, but if you're not familiar, bupivacaine injection is used to numb an area of your body during or after surgery for other procedures, childbirth, or dental work. Um, That's a hard word to say, (laughs) so bear with me. Okay, they defined a negative or indeterminate SIJ injections as well. So they were defined as indeterminate when there was a concordant pain response but insufficient pain relief or when substantial pain relief was reported in the absence of provocation of familiar pain. Indeterminate responses were considered negative just for a statistical analysis purpose. Injections not causing concordant pain provocation or analgesic response were also considered negative. Let's move into the clinical exam and talk about some of the SIJ tests that they performed. The PTs who carried out the exams had 25 and 17 years experience. The structured physical exam included a McKenzie exam of the lumbar spine, SIJ provocation tests, and a hip joint assessment too. 
So the tests they used included distraction, right-sided thigh thrust, right-sided Gan-Salen's test, compression, and sacral thrust testing as they had acceptable inter-rater reliability. So let's just review them really quick, just for review's sake. Distraction test is where the patient is lying supine and the examiner applies a vertically oriented, posterior directed force to both ASIS, that's also called the gapping test, and a positive test is if it reproduces symptoms. The compression test or the approximation test is where the patient is in side lying and the examiner's hands are placed over the upper part of the iliac crest, pressing towards the floor. A positive test has a positive reproduction of pain. Gensalen's test is where the patient begins positioned in supine with the painful leg resting on the edge of the treatment table. The examiner sagittally flexes the non-symptomatic hip while the knee is also flexed to 90 degrees. The patient should hold the non-tested asymptomatic leg with both arms while the PT stabilizes the pelvis and applies a passive pressure to the leg being tested to the symptomatic one to hold in a hyperextended position. A downward force is applied to the lower leg, that symptomatic side, putting it into hyperextension at the hip, while a flexion-based counterforce is applied to the flexed leg, pushing it in the cephalid direction, causing torque to the pelvis. If that was confusing, look at a figure of this in the article. It helps to envision it much better if you don't perform this a lot clinically, but a positive test of that is one that produces pain. Moving on to the right-sided thigh thrust test. This one has a lot of aliases, including the PPPP test, the P4 test, the thigh thrust test, the posterior shear test, and the posh test. The patient is in supine. The hip is flexed to 90 degrees with a bended knee to stretch those posterior structures. And then there's an axial pressure along the length of the femur. The femur is gonna be used as a lever to push the ilium posteriorly. One hand is placed beneath the sacrum to fixate its position, while the other hand is used to apply a downward force to the femur. A positive test is also one that reproduces pain. And then that last test is the sacral thrust test. So with the patient in prone, the examiner applies an anteriorly directed pressure over the sacrum. One hand is placed directly on the sacrum and is being reinforced by the other hand. A positive test is one that reproduces pain. And let me just clarify that when I say pain, I mean the patient's familiar SIJ pain. So on to some results. There were 62 patients examined by a radiologist and a PT. 48 of those patients satisfied all of the inclusion criteria. There were no significant differences between positive and negative responders to diagnostic injection with regards to age, gender, working status, Dallas and Roland questionnaire results, or pain intensity prior to exam. Of the 48 patients satisfying inclusion criteria, 16 had positive SIJ injections. So looking at specific combinations of tests, it was found that the distraction test had the highest single positive predictive value and the AUC The thigh thrust, compression, and sacral thrust test improved the overall diagnostic ability. So if you're not familiar, the AUC stands for area under the curve, and it's important as it calibrates the trade-off between that sensitivity and the specificity at the best chosen threshold. The Gainsalance test did not improve the AUC value, so that would imply that the Gainsalance test did not contribute positively and could be omitted from the diagnostic process without compromising that diagnostic confidence. The optimal rule was to perform the distraction, the thigh thrust, compression, and sacral thrust tests, but stopping when there were two positives. So let's move on to the discussion. All patients with SIJ pathology identified by injection had at least one positive test. 
only one patient out of 16 with SIJ pain had a single positive test with 15 having two or more positive SIJ tests. So one reasonable clinical rule is that when all provocation SIJ tests are negative, symptomatic SIJ pathology can be ruled out. They found that the thigh thrust test is the most sensitive test and that the distraction test is the most specific test. Three or more of the six tests are going to produce the highest likelihood ratio. They go on to discuss that there are limitations within the study, one of them being the patients in the study were more chronic and disabled than those typically seen in primary care or most secondary referral environments. Another limitation was the study design, which they go on to discuss more in depth. They know that the calculation of predictive values or false positive rates in a sample, at least partially selected for possible SIJ involvement, are not to be generalizable to other patient populations. So let's just give some take-home points for big picture and potential clinical relevance. Clinically, we're going to think of performing the thigh thrust and the distraction test first. If both tests provoke familiar pain, no further testing is indicated. If one test is positive, the compression test is applied. And if positive, a painful SIJ is likely and no further testing is required. If compression is not painful, the sacral test is applied. The authors noted that two of four positive tests, distraction, compression, thigh thrust, or sacral thrust, or three of more of the full set of six tests are the best predictors of a positive intraarticular SIJ block. When all six of those provocation tests are negative, a painful SIJ pathology can be ruled out. All right, so that'll do it for this double article review. We're still in the thick of pregnancy and postpartum articles, and next up, we're on to McGrath in 2006 on palpation of the SIJ, an anatomical and sensory challenge, which is pretty interesting considering the author's of this did not use any palpation-based testing because of its poor inter-examiner reliability for those demonstrated in prior subjects. We have about five more pregnancy and postpartum articles, then you can hear one of my lame jokes before we're heading into the study week five on special topics in pregnancy and postpartum. Every so often, I check and see another rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts. So again, I just want to thank you all for listening. I realize I am not an expert podcaster, but I appreciate all the kind words and the feedback. And I know that the WCS is such an interesting study guide, and I personally found it pretty challenging to navigate and just have time for. All right. So thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope to see you all listening at our next article by McGrath in 2006. And I have a feeling it's going to be another one of those two for one specials with Uh, men's 2002 article on the validity of active straight leg rays as well, just based off of the um, shortness of the article. So anyways, thanks for listening. Bye everyone. (laughs) 